season seven of Matthew, we've been in it a long time, um, and there's a shift in the book, and that's why it's now a, a different season um, for us. But let's start with this. Let's play some musical trivia. Who can name this tune? Come on. Name it. Jackson Brown, the, the pretender. Jackson Brown, the pretender. Now, it's not a... It's not like a gigantically famous song. It, the highest I think it ever got on the music board um, in 1977 was like 57 or 58. So it, it's, but, but when you go back now and you try to represent the music of the 70s, the pretender is almost always part of it, almost always. It's an incredibly insightful song where Jackson Brown sings about this, this struggle between following his dreams and chasing after the dollar. And he, uh, in, a, in a generation that had the greatest music of all time, he actually wrote about something other than just having a girlfriend and getting drunk. Um, he, says, he says, in the part of the song, it says, Ah, the laughter of the lovers as they run through the night, leaving nothing but to choose off and fight and tear at the world with all their might while the ships bearing their dreams sail out of sight. It's a little bit of a bummer song in that um, he, he ends up saying, I'm gonna be a happy idiot and struggle for the legal tender. I'm gonna chase the dollar bill and believe in whatever may lie to me in those things that money can buy, though true love could have been a contender. Are you there? Say a prayer for the pretender who started out so young and strong only to surrender. Now, you don't have to like Jackson Brown. But I heard that song this past week. I've been preparing for this message for several weeks, and I couldn't wait to do it. I couldn't wait to do it because it arms you. Jesus arms us with becoming a pretender. He arms us um, against the kinds of things that cause us to leave our dreams. And actually gives us strength to re-engage them again. So let me pray for us, and um, we'll get going. Father, thank you for how you have already encouraged me with the, with the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13. How these little simple stories bring such um, perspective, such balance to our lives if we allow it. And God, I know, I, I know this happens on a regular basis. When I get real excited about something that happens in me, I, I want God so much for your spirit to pour that out of me and into these folks. 
And I can't do that. I can't, I'm not good enough. And so please, empower your word in ways that only you can. Guard us from the kinds of things that might distract us just for a few minutes that we might hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've got, a, we've got a, a section here in Matthew chapter 13 where we're introduced to parables. It's the very first time that parables show up in the book of Matthew, and um, so we want to take a look at those, and then one parable, we're going to skip uh, around. We're only going to be able to have time. There's many parables in this chapter. We're only going to have time for a few, so we're going to skip around, but I want you to see first the reality of the world. There's a parable that kind of lays out for us what we can expect in the world. There's a next parable which will teach us about the reality of the kingdom and how it unfolds. And then there's an, ex- an encouragement um, about just how much it's worth it to pursue this kind of life. Parables are tricky. I don't know um, if you've really noticed it, but these parables, when they show up, they're, they're vastly important. One-third of Jesus' words that we have recorded are in parable form. So you can't just say, well, there's stories, I don't get them. It, 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 that won't work. You, you dismiss too much. And it, it's this, they show up here in Matthew, and there's going to be 24 parables in Matthew between here and the end of the book. 28 parables in Luke. Ten in, I mean, I'm sorry, in, in um, yes, in Luke. Ten in Mark. Zero in John. John's a different kind of animal. Um, and he writes with different purposes because he's the last of the four to write. And he says, you guys have all covered this. Let me introduce you to a few more things. But Jesus doesn't necessarily tell par- parables to make everything clear. He wanted to provoke our imagination and invite us to see what God is doing in the world and in his kingdom. That's Tim Mackey from the Bible Project. Jesus is, this is from a guy named Klein Snodgrass. Jesus' parables are among the best known and most influential stories in the world. Even if people know nothing of Jesus, they either know about his stories or have encountered their impact in expressions like prodigal or good Samaritan. The importance of the parables of Jesus can hardly be overestimated. They, they're tricky because um, they're parabolic. They, they are phrases that you can't necessarily take completely literally. There are, there are parables that are similes, that are parables uh, that are uh, comparisons between things that would be known and things that would be unknown. Um, they, he, Jesus would take primarily from the agrarian world of the farming world that, that he's living in in the first century, and he would draw these principles out of those things that people know to teach about the principles of the kingdom that he wants them to get. Now, they're almost always brief. The average length of a parable is four verses. Um, they're marked by simplicity. Um, they rarely, only in one parable or story, do we have anybody ever named. You don't usually know the characters' names. Um, and they're usually like have some kind of a sticky little twist that you didn't expect to happen. So let's take a look. 
Now, let me warn you. Um, the danger in parables is that you will take them and then you will draw principles for your life from the literal story. So this is not a parable about how to farm. Okay, that is not, right? You don't go to the prodigal son and say, this is a parable about how to parent. Giving a wayward child lots of money is probably dumb. <laughs> In every instance. There are other, the parable of the prodigal is about the heart of God towards us. It's not about how to parent. So Jesus is taking what they would be familiar with and teaching about things that are hard to grasp. So the warning to you is, is when you jump in parables, they almost always give you hints at the first about what they're talking about. And of course, these parables do as well. Watch, verse 24, Matthew 13. Jesus told them another parable about the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So this is about the kingdom. It's not about growing things in your fields. Here we go. Kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. While everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds. Now, this is interesting. This word for weeds is zizania. It's fun to say, zizania. It's actually a particular weed um, that they were very familiar with in the Middle East, and it grows up exactly like wheat until the heads burst fruit, the kernels. It looks exactly like it in color and in stock when it's first coming up. So there's no distinction between the weed and the wheat until the very end of the harvest. They sowed weeds among the wheat, and then they went away. And when the wheat sprouted, see, it doesn't show until then, and formed heads, then the wheat also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? When, where did, then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied, and the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you will uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow until the harvest. Now, when you begin to understand what this parable means, that's a really hard statement. Let both of them grow. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles and be burned, and then gather the weed and bring it into my barn. Skipping down a few verses, the disciples go to him and say, hey, we're, could you help us with that? What's this stuff about Zazania and how do we work this out? He left the crowd and went into the house and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us, please, the parable of the weeds in the field. Okay, it doesn't say please, but I, I think they said it. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world, and the good seed stands for people of the kingdom, and the weeds are the people of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of 
they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteousness will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the first principle, the principle of the world, and it is this, good and evil, until the end of the age, good and evil will always coexist. It is by plan that it happens that way. And, and, it's really hard to tell the difference until something comes along to show where the fruit of the life is. We spend our lifetimes, at least I do, begrudging the fact that rats are winning the rat race. When in fact, the only people who can win the rat race are rats. And I reply just like the neighbors when they see the weeds come up. God, what are you doing? What's going on? Why, why is this stuff happening around us? And he would say, and then I respond, you want me to get them for you? You want me to get them? And God is saying, in order for some to come into the kingdom of heaven, I will risk rejection from others who will choose the kingdom of evil. That's how much I love every person on the planet. Don't, don't fret, don't worry, don't get all fired up, don't think you've got to worry about how to sort people out. We spend so much energy trying to figure out who's in and who's not, when most of the teachings of the scripture are there to affirm that whether you're in or not, And this parable, if, you can, if, if, if I could just embrace the reality, this is by God's plan. This is how it will unfold. Unless I live to the end of the age, there will always be good and evil. Because in order for there to be good and love, there must be the risk of evil. That's the deal. There must be freedom to choose. And if they choose the good, they can also choose evil, and some will. And you, using all of your energy to try to figure out how to identify them and then get rid of them is a waste of time. It is a waste of your time. There's also something very clear from this story. So before we move on, just ask yourself, how much energy did I use in the past week or two complaining about the existence of evil? Distracted by that existence and then engaging in things that I feel like I should do to correct the existence of evil. I actually start trying to pull up the weeds before the harvest season comes 
Can I, can I let you off the hook? The harvesters are the angels, not the people who sowed the seed. That's not your job. It's super easy to get discouraged and become a pretender, to surrender your dreams, because the onslaught of evil is so constant, and it's so difficult to recognize. It's zizania. It looks exactly the same for so long. People have walked by your side for so long, and they've, they've had your back, you think, for so long, and then suddenly something happens and it flips, and, and you get so discouraged because of that. Rightfully so. There's been a relationship that's been violated. It's okay to be discouraged, but you should not be surprised. Now, the other thing about this parable is this. There is a time. There is a reckoning. There is an end of the age where those who are qualified will separate the weed from the wheat. My question usually to God is, why are you waiting so long? Right? Well, here's a thought. Tens of thousands of people will enter into the kingdom of God today. 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 And had he come yesterday and declared the end of the age, all of those people would have missed out. Now, it probably wasn't in your family, but it might have been. It could be. The scriptures give us this little insight that he seems slow, but he's not slow like we think because he doesn't want anyone to perish. And once the harvest comes, the end of the age is done. And so before you begrudge all of the struggle that you have, think of that. Think of the thousands, literally tens of thousands, that today will be ushered into the kingdom of God because of the good news of who Jesus is, perhaps in this room. So the first lesson is this beautiful lesson of the reality of the world is the existence of good and evil side by side, very difficult to distinguish. Very, very difficult to distinguish. There's another parable, though, and it has a reality about the kingdom. Here's what it says. Verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. And though it is the smallest of all seeds, I mean, it is itty-bitty, Much, much smaller than your, your small fingernail on your littlest finger. Much smaller than that. It's, it's a tenth the size of your fingernail. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. Then he told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took 
and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour. That's a lot of flour. Until it worked all through the dough. Jesus spoke these things to the crowd in parables, and he did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. The opposition has become so intense that the boundary lines have been drawn and they desire Christ's death. Nothing but, but, nothing but elimination of Christ will do for the enemy now. And so he represents that distinction and that division by speaking to them in parables that they cannot understand. And this one about the kingdom basically tells us this. It only takes a little. (laughs) It only takes a little bit. Now to emphasize that, take a look at this. 60 pounds of wheat is... Um, is the three sias. That's the, in Greek, it would have been sias. So three of those would have been 60 pounds. 60 pounds is 210 cups of flour. It's a bunch, okay? Here's what it looks like. The yeast needed for all of that flour, 60 pounds, is nine tablespoons. Just a little bit over a half a cup. Now, the ratio, I'm going to push this a little bit just for fun. The ratio of yeast to flour is 1 to 373. Now, I don't think this parable is teaching exact ratios that God needs to get anything done, okay? I'm not saying that. But if he wanted to reach Santa Clara County, here's a picture of a map that I have in my office of Santa Clara County and Um, Westgate's the big dot, second from the top right there. You can't see it. But we're there. And these are churches, those dots are churches that we're in pretty significant relationships with on a regular basis. To reach that county of 1.88 million people, according to the parable of the yeast, Jesus would need about this many. It only takes a little, just a little bit for the kingdom of God to be fully accomplished in all that he needs to do. Just a little bit. Now, let me ask you a question about the last couple of weeks. Have you recently been super discouraged about how big the problems are in our world and said to yourself, I can't do squat? You probably didn't say that, but you said something like it. They're too, it's too big. My little bit can't, be, can't make any difference. My little bit's not gonna make any difference at all. Well, in the kingdom of God, that is a lie. The kingdom of God, first, you're gonna, be, you're, you're gonna live in a world that has good and evil, and it's really tough to distinguish the two, And don't you worry, it's all gonna be set right. It's not your job to set it right. God will set it right someday. And next, as you exist in that kingdom of the world with good and evil all existing, it only takes a little bit to make a difference. All it took was a coach 
saying to me, please don't quit. All it took was a a mentor in college meeting with me and saying, let me help you with your degree. Let me help you pick the right courses to take. All it took was somebody coming along beside me and saying, yeah, seminary's pretty hard, but you can do it. You can do it. All it takes is a little thing, just a tiny little bit. And most of us, including myself, most of us won't do the little because we don't think it matters. Since we can't do a lot, we just let it go. The kingdom of heaven advances on a daily basis because people who love Jesus Christ decide to do a little thing. They're all little things. Giving a million dollars to something is a little thing. You think God's impressed with six zeros? Come on. It's just zeros. That's how he advances the kingdom. He takes his our little stuff and he does big stuff through it. He does all the hard stuff. Man, if, if I could just consistently embrace this, the two juxtapositions of these two parables, yes, it's gonna suck. Good and evil will exist, co- cohabitate together at the same time, and it's very, very difficult for me to recognize at the time which is gonna be good and evil. Now, eventually, it'll eventually come out. The proverb that says wisdom is vindicated by her children. You'll eventually know. If you're, if you're sitting next to a scum-sucking pig, you'll eventually know he's a scum-sucking pig. But probably today, you don't know if he's a scum-sucking pig or not. I, I didn't really plan that, but that just kind of... <laughs> I apologize to all the scum-suckers in the room. That's the reality, and in that reality, if I will just live my life with my hands open and my eyes up, looking for some little thing, some little statement, just takes a little bit. And it's worth it. This last parable I want to end with, it's worth it. You've heard famous stories of, that get circulated around about stuff that you find in a drawer or in an attic or in a basement or in a box somewhere, and it ends up being worth a lot of money. I mean, there's heirlooms that people once wore around their neck that are so ugly you'd never wear them, but they're worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, in fact, the one on the, um, your left is, is worth uh, north of $100,000. This Hot Wheels car is worth 150000 bucks. Somebody in the crowd's going, dang, I threw that one away. <laughs> I love the stories about somebody stumbles into a barn and finds a vintage car like one that's this one that's worth $675,000 found in a barn, had sat for decades. Baseball card collections that are worth north of a million bucks. They don't even look like baseball players. They're so old. Who are these people? 
but it's, it's a million bucks. In college, I was helping a family uh, clean out their attic, and in that, I found a guitar. They had a guitar and a violin up in the attic. One of them was a, a parlor guitar, looked just like this. And the, the person um, explained to me when I, I looked inside and I let them know that because of some markings, I knew that it was a Martin guitar. And I, I, at the time, I owned a Martin guitar, and I'm, uh, they are very good guitars. And this guitar that they had was actually an 1800s Martin sitting up in the attic. And I, told, I said, this is worth a lot of money. You, gotta, you, know, you should get it out of here and get it appraised and get it insured and taken care of. And they said, ah, you can have it. I went, no, you should, it's worth a lot of money. You should, nah, you can have it. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm in college. $10,000 when I was in college, that's, that might as well have been a million. Might as well have been a million bucks. And this guitar is worth somewhere around 10 grand. I'm like, yes, I'll take it. And she said, just yeah, we'll just sit it right here and you can get it when we finish tomorrow. When we finish the attic, you can take it with you. And I came back the next day and um, I saw the guitar and the guitar is not in the attic anymore. It's in their hallway, screwed in with wood screws, screwed into the wall, hanging there on the wall with the violin screwed in too, into the wall. And I'm just like, I almost, I, I responded, if you think that was a lot of sympathy in the room, I mean, I'm, I like almost fall to my knees. I'm like, oh my gosh. And she said, yeah, I decided to keep it as, a, as, some, as something on the wall that kind of, I needed something for the wall here. And I'm like, you scum sucking pig. <laughs> you gave it to me. No, I didn't push it. I said, well, okay, yeah, that's, that's a, I said, let me re just reiterate to you the value of that guitar. And she, she said, yeah, I get it. She didn't believe me, I don't think. But it was this treasure that would have changed my financial position for the rest of my college career. And the final parable that I want to share with you is like that. Verse 44 of chapter 13, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasures hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. By the way, um, this, is, this sounds like nobody puts their treasures in a field. But at the time, that's exactly what everybody did. There are no banks. There are no places to keep it safe. You're going to hide it on your property, mark it somehow. And then if you don't let somebody know where you put it, generationally, it can become lost. This is not an, un, this is a common thing in Jesus' day. Man found it and he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and he bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and he bought it. God's given you a tough assignment. He's asking you to exist where there's, a, there's the existence of two kingdoms, both good and evil. 
He's promised you that if you'll just do little bits, if you'll just respond to little things that you can, you can actually respond to, don't worry about all the stuff you can't do anything about, just the things that are around you. Open your eyes, lift up your head. That if you'll do that, if you'll live that way, there'll be treasures. Treasures in store for you. Now, don't misunderstand me. This is not a go be nice and get rich. This is the reality of the kingdom. That it will be repaid to you a thousandfold in some manifestation in the kingdom. You want to, if you could just, if I could just get you to see are there theological statements you don't understand? Yes. Are there things written in the Bible that are difficult? Yes. Is it scary to share your faith at work? Yeah. Is it difficult to share your resources with other people? Yes. But if you can understand, you exist in a kingdom in this world where good and evil are at war. And you have to know, what side of this war am I on? Don't be deceived. And if you decide I'm gonna be on the side of the kingdom of God, then just little things will matter. And as, they, as you live that kind of a life, the kinds of things that God will pour into you, you will not look back and begrudge the selling of everything you had. I'll tell you what didn't happen. The dude that found the treasure didn't go and sell everything and then go by that field and say, oh crap, I wish I had my stuff back. No chance, no chance of that. He's like, look, now that I own this field, I can dig it back out and look what this is. It's worth a, a thousand million times more than whatever I sold. That was an easy decision. Easy. You don't have to be a pretender. You don't have to surrender your dreams. You don't have to be a happy idiot. There is a war. It exists whether you acknowledge it or not. And you're neck deep in it, whether you want to be or not. but it only takes a little for the kingdom to matter. In my life, no one's done anything like, spec it's always been just small acts of kindness that encouraged me along the way. Just little words of encouragement that matter more than you can ever imagine. A young man just said to me before I got up, you're my favorite sermon. Now, that, there's a day when that would puff me up. And maybe it did a little today. <laughs> but mostly it gave me courage to go and say, there's a war, but just little things matter so much. Just takes a little bit, and you'll be glad you did. You'll be glad you did. Let's pray.
God, first, thanks for the countless little acts of kindness that have buoyed me up through the years. That have allowed me to stay the course and be right here, right now. And I know, I know that there are some in the room who maybe have given up hope. They've just decided, although they probably didn't say it this way, they've just become a happy idiot. It was too hard. Wasn't fair. May they be encouraged today by your spirit to know that that's why you came. That's why you came. That just a confession prayer away would be instantly restore us on the side of the kingdom of heaven because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And Father, would you, would you help them to see that just with a little thing, they can be completely restored and that it's worth it. To stay the course is worth it. What you have in store for us is better than we could ever come up with on our own. God, I want to live with this balance of the parables that you've given us. And I want our community to do that as well. Help us that we might do it in Jesus' name. Amen.